0: This is a crowd podcast. The
1: CNN was on and it says we must interrupt this program to let you know
2: that Kuwait has just been invaded by Iraq. All of a sudden we heard gunshots and that's the moment I realized these guys are serious.
3: And I didn't trust them one bit. But I had a steak knife, and I wasn't going to let go of that. If the Iraqis don't get you, I will. I will find you." You're listening to the secret
4: history of Flight 149. The true story of how and why an ordinary passenger plane was flown into a war zone, right into the hands of Saddam Hussein. My name is Stephen Davis. I'm an investigative journalist who's been covering the story for over 30 years. In episode one, we heard how flight 149 got stranded at Kuwait airport as the Iraqi army invaded. The passengers were caught in the crossfire with no chance of flying out. The airport was now surrounded. Most people on flight 149 thought they were just passing through Kuwait. But for some, it was their final destination. These passengers had made it out of the airport and into their hotels just before the Iraqi army rolled in.
1: As I was checking in and signing in, I heard a lot of automatic weapon fire, and I turned and looked outside. It was all you know; could see the the city and the street, and there were some tanks and other military vehicles going down the street.
4: This is George Shalom known to his family as B. George. He was travelling with his wife Deborah and son Preston. George had Middle Eastern heritage and was excited about starting a new job at the Bank of Kuwait. But his excitement soon turned to terror.
1: We really didn't know what was happening at the time. We were told that we needed to go up to our room and when we got in there, we uh, I opened up the uh, draperies, and there I saw a, a startling a sight. I saw a helicopters coming over the Arabian uh, Gulf. We saw jets firing missiles down to the center of the uh, of the town of Kuwait City. We saw troops with tanks and other military vehicles marching down, going through the city. It was kind of a very uh, terrifying. We did not know, my wife and I and my son did not know, if there was an eternal revolution happening uh, or if there was an invasion. We still had electricity at that time, and then we turned on the TV. The CNN was on, and it says we must interrupt this program to let you know that Kuwait has just been invaded by Iraq.
4: Here's Georgia's wife, Debra.
5: I mean, when you see the helicopters come in off the Gulf and they're dropping down the Republican Guard and they're chasing through the streets with machine guns and the tanks are coming through town, eating up asphalt, and knocking down stop signs, it's pretty frightening.
1: We actually had uh, audio telecommunications at that point in time. The first call I made was actually was able to call uh, my wife's home and we said the good news is that we're here and the bad news is that we're here. The second call that I made was the recruiter who was in London who recruited us. So then I talked with him, he said, well, I don't know what to tell you at this point in time. I'm sorry that you're there. Uh, The third call I made was actually to the human resources director that I had a phone number for the bank of Kuwait in the Middle East. And he was in a panic. He said, I do not know what to tell you. I don't know if I'll ever see you again. We're in as much trouble as you are. And then the fourth call I made was to the American embassy. They said, "Uh, we're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not call us. Do not come and see us. Do not leave where you are.
5: Pretty soon, the hotel realized that we were still in our room upstairs and they, they called us because we had been using the phone and they called us and said, you need to come to the basement. So we had to evacuate then to the basement and pretty much stayed there all the rest of the day.
4: Over the many years I've been reporting on this story, I've often tried to put myself in the hostages' shoes. Imagining what it would be like to turn up in Kuwait, excited about a new adventure, only to find yourself hiding in a hotel basement, sheltering from bombs. The utter confusion of it all. The shock. The fear. I've interviewed lots of these passengers many times, and I still can't fully comprehend what this must have felt like. The hotel staff were also in shock, their country was being invaded. They did their best to find everyone a room, praying that this would be over soon.
2: The next morning when we woke up, the first thing I did was look out the window. All I saw was the airport airfield full of Iraqi tanks.
4: This is Jenny Gill. We met her in episode one. She was travelling with her brother and sister. They were meant to be on holiday in Malaysia, but instead they were surrounded by tanks in Kuwait.
2: All the tanks were pointing guns at our direction at the hotel. There were just thousands of them. I don't think there was any space for any other vehicle. There were just tanks everywhere. And I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. And then I looked way down from the window and I could see they were like little ants, just one after the other. There were just like Iraqi soldiers running around the perimeter of the hotel. And hundreds, on thousands of them, and I was like, "What is going on here?"
4: Bizarrely, the hotel tried to keep up some sense of normality, even serving breakfast. But nothing about this was normal. Here's Barry Manners at the time, just 24 years old.
3: I just cr- was cracking a boiled egg at breakfast, and then I, there was a clear view from that restaurant across the apron, and there were three T-72. Well, I recognise as T-72 tanks tearing across the apron with the barrels sort of swivelling, coming towards us. You'll remember from the last episode that he was
4: travelling with his partner, Anthony, who he was very protective of. Anthony was HIV positive, and Barry had recently quit his job to care for him.
3: So that was the first Iraqi soldier that I saw sitting on top of one of these tanks with his double-barrelled machine guns, pointing in generally in my direction at which point I grabbed Anthony we went upstairs and <laughs> I laugh about it now I suppose but I forced him I told him to get in the bath and put a mattress over his head <laughs> you were hearing gunfire and 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 explosions and all sorts of things and uh there was a lot of chaos downstairs I mean there was a I'd seen a as we when we saw the tank the tanks coming there was the Kuwaiti security guard started running around with a pistol in his hand. I mean, what was he going to do? I was just concerned they were going to start blasting the hotel. After a while, it became clear that perhaps they weren't going to blast the hotel, so I just moved the bed away from the window as far towards the wall as possible. So I moved the bed and just put that bed against the wall with a mattress up and just to sort of be away from, with the curtains closed, away from the windows, really.
2: We wanted to. Do- try and phone our parents and because we couldn't get through to them that night they said oh sorry but we can't get you know we we need to get everybody checked into the hotel first they said if you come down tomorrow morning we'll try and get you to make phone calls etc we actually managed to get through to our cousins in malaysia and said can you please tell mum and dad we are in kuwait we're in a hotel nothing's happened to us but we're here we're stuck here at the moment after that all communications were just shut down completely and that was the first and last time during our whole ordeal that we actually had any interaction with family or relatives.
4: When did you start to think that you might be a hostage?
2: I guess when... Well, what happened is when we when we came down that day and we spoke to our cousins, straight after that, they asked us to go and have breakfast. And they were taking turns of groups of people to go in and have breakfast. While we were having our breakfast that morning we were still quite optimistic that, oh, we're going to actually leave. Everything's going to be fine and we're going to leave. But all of a sudden we heard gunshots and that's when we knew, I didn't think hostage, but I thought, oh shit, we're stuck. Something's happened, something's gone wrong. And when we came out of the dining area and into the hotel foyer, what we saw were the Iraqis had actually come into the hotel, pulled off the pictures on the wall of the hotel where they had the king of Kuwait, threw his photograph down on the floor and started shooting at it. Now that's when the fear set in because when I walked into the foyer I could just see glass everywhere and that's when I knew this is out of hand now, this is wrong, this isn't normal.
4: They were just blasting away at the floor of the hotel.
2: Yeah, they were blasting at at the actual photos of the king and you've got passengers in that hotel. So that was scary. That was really scary. And that's the moment I realised these guys have got guns. These guys are serious. So we've got to be really careful here about anything and everything we do.
4: Remember Clive Earthy, the British Airways Cabin Services Director? He was doing his best to
0: keep his crew and passengers safe. Being the senior cabin services officer on station there in the hotel, I was asked to inform all the crews not to to go out and also to don't go anywhere alone. Don't leave the hotel. If you are going anywhere, let me know or let your captains know, be jumped together uh, as a crew and uh, organised all sorts of help things for the passengers that were staying there. I had asked my crew to man the lobby for the passengers' questions uh, whenever a passenger came up and trying desperately to keep everybody happy and tell them what little information that we had, which wasn't a lot, not a lot at all.
2: The stewardesses were so good to my sister and I because we didn't have any clothes on us. We didn't have any, you know, even undergarments. You know, we didn't have, I had a couple of items in my hand luggage that I kept on the, on, in the cabin of the aircraft. So we had that one bag and that was about it, but there was nothing in it. But I remember the stewardesses giving my sister and I shirts and they said, look, don't worry. Look, you guys haven't got clothes. Take these, take, you know. And that was just really humbling, you know. And I just thought, you know, we're all in this together. It doesn't matter whether you're crew, whether you're a passenger, it doesn't matter who you are. Right now, this is all about survival.
4: So, the Flight 149 passengers are now stuck in hotels as the city around them is being seized by the Iraqi army. The airport has been captured, the runway's been bombed, and no one knows how they're going to get out. I want to turn now to what was going on at the British Embassy. Tony Pace was first secretary at the British Embassy in Kuwait. He had another job too. Exactly what that was and what significance it has to the story will be revealed later. But I can tell you that he's risked imprisonment to give us this interview. You'll hear us mention someone called O'Toole. This is Laurie O'Toole, the British Airways manager in Kuwait. It's important to note that Laurie and Tony have differing accounts of key details of the story. We'll be delving into that more later, and we've approached Laurie for an interview. But for now, let's hear from Tony and what he was doing at the embassy as Iraqi troops took over the city. The first I knew that
6: invasion was actually happening was about 4.20 when I heard the sound of what are silenced Kalashnikovs. If you make a pop with your cheek, that's the noise you hear. Then the bombs started dropping and what have you. By that time, I was shredding like mad.
4: Was that what you were doing for most of that, that period, shredding? Yes.
6: Um, As soon as I realized we were completely surrounded, I did not want to be caught out as the Americans had been caught out in uh, Tehran uh, at the time of the Iranian Revolution. And of course, I was on my own in the office at that point. And you had a call then from, from O'Toole, wasn't it, telling you there was a plane there? It was from O'Toole. I'd been rung already by the Americans to see how I was getting on. And I said, well, I'm shredding. And they said they were burning. So they were on the same mission. But O'Toole rang at, I think, about 5.30. And he said, we've got an aeroplane caught or blocked or whatever at the uh, airport. Uh, And my response to that was one of surprise that a I didn't think there was a plane going through at that time secondly I was surprised that they were even flying and I said well sorry Laurie I'm cooped up here there's nothing I can do to help you my first priority was to make sure Her Majesty's secrets were shredded and actually I'd even got a little fire going in the middle of my uh, office which was a bit of a laugh it's concrete floor and I'd started the uh, embassy sprinklers so <laughs> I didn't realise I was going to do that.
4: So you were you were shredding, burning and flooding simultaneously? <laughs> yes. Yeah.
6: And meanwhile, of course, all hell that was let loose outside, you know, I'm standing up at the shredder and machine gun bullets were hitting the wall just behind the shredder. Right. Did you think uh, there was a possibility they might enter the embassy? That was another phone call I got. The guards knew I was in the building, rang me up and said, Mr. Pace, Mr. Pace, the army wants to come in. At the point, I don't know which army. (laughs) It could have been the Kuwaitis trying to take refuge because uh, what had happened was Iraqi special forces uh, had landed on the beach below the embassy, which was adjacent to the palace where the emir lived, and hoping to catch him. They missed him, I think, by about
4: an hour. So we were surrounded. So you're in the middle of an invasion now, and you got finished with your your shredding and burning. What was the priority then as the day unfolded?
6: Well, uh, once my shredding was done, I had to move to help the embassy get rid of all their secrets as well. Anything to do with personality is people. The corollary is what happened in Afghanistan recently, whereby people 's details were left for all to see in the case of our embassy, it was shredded out completely, and if we had been entered, nothing would have been found of any sort
4: With, without wishing to disclose any secrets but it's it's fair to say that you were protecting Assets who, if their names had fallen into the hands of the Iraqis, they would face serious consequences. Isn't that right?
6: It's correct, Stephen. Uh, One has a duty of care. Uh, You ask people to um, risk their necks. You do everything possible to make sure the necks don't get cut off.
4: Shortly after the invasion, many phone lines out of Kuwait were cut, But internal calls across the city could still get through. And so George Saloom, who was still trapped at his hotel, was able to stay in touch with the American Embassy.
1: I had kept communications with them, or they had uh, called me and kept me abreast of what was happening. But they have said at that point in time, you are not to come to the American Embassy. We're not equipped to support you or any of the, the population there that are regular American citizens.
4: Here's Georgia's wife, Deborah, again.
5: I knew we were in deep trouble. You know, we, we were stuck. We didn't know which way was north, south, east or west, other than we could see the gulf. So we had no one else to call, nothing else to do but to rely on the help from the, the hotel
4: So the passengers had no choice but to stay where they were, hoping that their embassy, their government or British Airways, someone, anyone, would get them out. After several days of lockdown in the hotels, the passengers could tell the situation outside was getting worse. By this point the Kuwaiti army had been defeated, outnumbered and outgunned by the Iraqis. The Kuwaiti royal family had fled to Saudi Arabia, Saddam Hussein was now very much in charge. The problem was, no one knew which version of Saddam they would be dealing with. The brutal dictator who murdered thousands of his own people, or the friend of the West who welcomed American officials to Baghdad. For the hostages, it was a guessing game, with more questions than answers. I asked Jenny what they were hearing at the hotel.
2: Things were already hyping up, you know, you were hearing stories and... Some of the stuff that was going on in the background was, you know, coming to surface and, you know, it was, it was becoming very difficult. I mean, we know that there was a, a female crew member who was raped. We know that. After we'd been there about two, three days, my sister and I were called to go and speak to the captain. He wanted to talk to us. So we went to see him and he said, um, I'm really worried about you two. You're two very young girls and I need to keep you safe. And I'm very worried that I think if it's okay with you guys, I'd like you guys to be escorted everywhere by crew around the hotel as well, because these guys, and he was referring to the Iraqi soldiers, if they want a woman, they will take a woman, you know, just be mindful that the basement of the hotel is where the Iraqi soldiers are. So please don't go there. I've told all the other passengers, well, nobody's to go to the basement. And nobody is to use, I think it was the top two floors, if I'm not mistaken, of the hotel were also given to the Iraqis. I was more concerned about the basement because I could see them from my window. And then the the beach was just beyond that. And we could see that they'd actually dug trenches along the beach. And they were sitting in those trenches. So we could see them moving around. All I could imagine was that there's hundreds of them down there and on the basement. So what I mustn't do is ever go down there.
4: It was a weird existence, trapped in a hotel half-occupied by the Iraqi army. Saddam kept referring to them as guests, but in reality, they were hostages. Still, they were told the safest thing to do was to stay put. Here's Barry Manners.
3: We settled into a routine where it was reassuring in the sense that we were in a comfortable hotel. We had good food, thank Christ for that. It was ruthlessly air conditioned. It was comfortable insofar as it can be comfortable, and British Airways were being helpful. They actually asked if anyone needed any medication. We had only been travelling with sufficient meds for Anthony for the duration of our holiday, so I had given the lady who claimed to be a BA nurse a list of the medications that he that would be useful to him. In order of priority and um, it was just after that that things went very wrong for us i got a phone call in the room from this lady who had said she was a nurse and she didn't recognize the meds and she was obviously under a lot of stress and said, you know, why do you need so many medications? I've got children here that have got diarrhea. The problem with HIV back then was that patients and their partners knew more about HIV than most doctors. And so this was flying over her head at 30, 33,000 feet. She, she, she wasn't getting it. I said, look, Christ, he's got, you know, he's got HIV, he's got AIDS. Oh, she said, well, I'm gonna have to call you back. And then the next phone call was from the uh, a chap who introduced himself as the BA sales manager. And uh, he said that he couldn't get these drugs, but he was arranging for us both to be transferred immediately to the infectious disease unit of the local public hospital. And my reaction to that was, no fucking way. The last place you put someone with a compromised immune system is an infectious disease hospital. You know, and his reply was that he was at risk of infecting other passengers, and that I had shared a room with him, and therefore I could be infected, and that it's a notifiable disease in Kuwait. We're going to notify the authorities. You're going to go to a hospital, and you've got to leave the hotel immediately.
4: It's hard to imagine how being dropped into a war zone could get any worse, but with vital medication running short and staff trying to force them out of the hotel. Things were getting seriously dicey for Barry and Anthony. We'll hear what happened to them a bit later in the episode. A large number of the Flight 149 passengers were Malaysian and Indian. The West were mostly European, British and American. Some governments were prepared to negotiate with Saddam. Others were not. It became clear early on that British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and US President George Bush were taking a hard line.
1: West is dealing with a person who without warning has gone into the territory of another state with tanks, aircraft and guns, has fought and taken that state against international law, against the will of that state, and has set up a puppet regime. That is the act of an aggressor which must be stopped. We need to discuss full and total implementation of these sanctions, ruling out nothing at all.
4: They backed up their strong words with strong action. Barely a week after the invasion, the US sent thousands of troops to Saudi Arabia with support from Britain. Would other countries join the coalition or stay out? And what would that mean for the hostages? Here's Journey again.
2: The, the conversation really sort of struck off when we actually had the representative from the British Embassy visit the hotel and they basically talked about the fact that you know the British government knew what was going on British Airways knew what was going on and because of the situation that we find ourselves in Iraq has invaded Kuwait so although you can go to Baghdad with your British passport, it's not something that we can recommend you do if you want to leave the hotel because you're going to be on your own. There's no safety measures or security that we can give you or guarantees that we can give you that you'll arrive at the other end safely. There are border checks everywhere. We have no idea how you're going to get there. We can't even tell you how to get there. But if you want to do that, that is entirely up to you.
4: It didn't seem like they were being given many options. And the tough political stance from the UK government meant that British hostages weren't going to be coming home anytime soon. So when someone from the Malaysian embassy held a meeting at the hotel, it gave Ginny some hope. Malaysia was seen as a country sympathetic to Iraq. And thanks to some behind-the-scenes diplomatic dealing, Saddam agreed to let the Malaysian passengers go. Ginny's parents were Malaysian. Perhaps this could be her way out.
2: So we thought, okay, why don't we just sneak into that meeting? No one's going to know and we can listen to what they're saying. So we snuck into that meeting and we were listening. And at the end of it, we we went and spoke to the representative from the Malaysian embassy. And we said, well, we, we, we just said to him, we're Malaysians. <laughs> or oh, my parents are Malaysian. That's what we said. Sorry. My parents are Malaysian. Is there anything you can do for us? We need to get out of here. And I assume there was some conversation in the background going on between the Malaysian government, the British government and whoever was in Kuwait. There was conversation going on as to, you know, who are these kids and do we want to take the risk of taking them with us? So the next meeting that the Malaysians had, he actually said to us, we've spoken to the British government, they are aware of the situation And what they've said to us, based on humanitarian grounds, we would encourage you to take those passengers with you. And based on the color of their skin, who would know whether they're British or whether they're Malaysian? So when we spoke to him, he said, okay, we are prepared to take you, but you will have to surrender your British passports to us. And I guess part of us was happy and part of us was thinking, oh my God, If we give up our British nationality, because that's the only thing we had on us. If we were to give that up and anything happened to us along the way, who's to say who would, you know, how would we prove who we are? And I guess that was the dilemma. Do we take that element of risk or do we just stay where we are with the group of people that we're with?
4: It was a tough decision. The situation at the hotel wasn't good, But they had clean water, food, and a roof over their heads. To join a convoy heading to Jordan might lead to freedom. But one wrong move, and it could be all over. While Jenny and her siblings wrestled with their decision, Barry and Anthony's situation was getting worse by the second.
3: Next, there was a knock at the door, and there was a group of about four people, as I recall, saying, no, we've come to help you move. It was, you're moving out this hotel room now, Sonny. And um, I closed the door, started moving uh, heavy furniture, anything that I could put against the door to stop them getting through. Put the chain on the door and said, we're not moving anywhere. Tried talking sense through the door, wasn't getting anywhere. Phoned the British Embassy to try and explain, you know, can someone talk some sense into these people? It's becoming chaotic, it's falling apart. The next thing I know, there was a, a phone call and it was agreed that they would leave food and disinfectant and things outside whilst this was sorted out whilst we were in the room so we were gonna be fed because I was worried that we wouldn't be fed so we'd be starved out. They They very helpfully sent up a bottle of disinfectant and a tray of food, but with very strict instructions that they would knock on the door and then we had to wait, I think it was two or three minutes before we opened the door so that the room service guy could evacuate the corridor. I kid you not. The following day, we got another phone call in the hotel bedroom asking me to come down to meet with the hotel manager and to discuss because they they had a plan of action for us and I didn't trust them one bit but I had a steak knife from the meal that we'd had the night before and I wasn't going to let go of that so I went down I can't remember exactly what I said but I made it very clear that it would be very unfortunate if they tried to remove Anthony whilst I was away from the room. I think it was something along the lines of, if you try something, you better hope that the if the Iraqis don't get you, I will. I will find you. That, I don't want to sound melodramatic, but you know we're in the situation where, as far as I'm concerned, they're trying to murder my partner. And I'd have gone to war to, to stop that happening. And um, anyway, I went to this meeting. Uh, Anthony barricaded himself back in the room. And um, I was told that there was a compromise had been reached where we would leave the main hotel, but we could go to what turned out to be kind of a porter cabin prefab type accommodation in the grounds of the hotel. Yeah, we were just told to stay inside the porter cabin, and um, that was it. And, uh, oh, and they left a five liter drum of disinfectant. As Jenny mentioned earlier.
4: Iraqi soldiers were now stationed at the hotel.
3: Probably within hours of moving into this porter cabin, they came wandering round, and they weren't—they were the, uh, the kind of conscript types, the, the sort of teenagers with ill-fitting uniforms and Kalashnikovs. And um, the only—I just dealt with that the best I could because it was intimidating. Because you know they got guns for Christ's sake, you know. It, it was an anxious time because there were, at night there were a lot of anti-aircraft fire going up in the air, a lot of, and I was worried that stray bullets might come through because we, we didn't have the protection. You know, We're in a prefab, we've got no protection if, if a bullet comes through the, the, uh, the wall. While Barry and Anthony
4: were stuck in the porter cabin, Jenny and her siblings were asking for advice on whether they should stay at the hotel or risk escaping in disguise. It could be a life or death decision.
2: We then spoke to the British Airways crew, we were talking to other passengers, we were talking to the Malaysian passengers. We didn't have, uh, you know, our parents there to guide us and we were looking to other people to help us. Are we making the right decision? Should we go or should we stay? And I guess the consensus was, if you have the chance to go, go. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. and. Actually, we have no idea when we're going to get out. My, I guess my thinking was, yeah, but you're still safe here. As in, you're all together and you know, you're getting food, you're getting watered. So I guess all of that was going through our minds as well. It was only that morning that we actually decided to go. They took us straight to the Malaysian embassy first and we stayed there that night. And what they did was that's when they actually told us to surrender our British passports. I was still very fearful. The guy there said to us, look, we are taking a big risk taking you on. But what I will say is, please don't speak to each other in English because your accents are very English. (laughs) So speak to each other in your mother tongue and make sure you guys are completely, especially myself, uh, my sister and I, you know, cover yourselves like you have been. And that's what we would recommend you carry on doing for the duration of this convoy out of Kuwait into Baghdad and then beyond into Jordan. So that's what we did. And then we left the Malaysian embassy the following day. I guess we were just putting our fate in their hands really because we had no idea.
4: Ginny and her brother and sister were taking a huge risk. They were disguising themselves as Malaysian with fake paperwork and no plan B. If they were discovered by Iraqi forces, they would be in grave danger. Soldiers weren't showing any mercy to those trying to escape, as 49-year-old Douglas Kroskoy would soon discover. As a long-term British resident of Kuwait, Douglas was a confident man. He knew the country well and spoke Arabic. Most importantly, he didn't have to worry about his family who were out of the country when the invasion happened. He left the city at midnight in a convoy of six cars. They managed to avoid all the Iraqi patrols. Douglas had a Kuwaiti teenager named Farhad next to him. As the convoy neared the border, it approached a fork in the road. The leader took the right fork, thinking it led to the border post and to freedom. But instead, it led them to a dead end. Realising their mistake, they tried to turn the car around, but it was too late. A group of Iraqi soldiers who'd been looting cars nearby spotted the fugitives as they were making their U-turn. The soldiers shouted at them to stop. No one will ever know if Douglas heard the shouting. A soldier fired at the car, a long burst from his AK-47. They hit Douglas in the back of his head, killing him instantly. The other passengers screamed as the skull was splattered over the windshield. Teenager Fahad jumped out of the car shouting at the soldiers, but they pointed their guns at him, telling him he'd be next if he didn't get back in. The soldiers dragged the body out onto the road. The last time Fahad saw Douglas was in the rearview mirror, his body lying face down in the sand. Jenny, it was clear, could not afford to get caught. She boarded the bus preparing for the long drive to Jordan. They would have to pass through multiple Iraqi checkpoints. All she could do was hope they'd made the right decision.
2: It felt like forever, um, more than 12 hours, I'm sure. It was so awful. The checkpoints were really scary, but we were actually sort of forewarned before a checkpoint was, we arrived at the checkpoint. so. You know, we'd sort of say, okay, right, we're coming up to a checkpoint, everyone, just be careful. They might be boarding the coach, so don't look at them, don't do anything. I remember that I had a seat to myself and I had put my bag up against uh, next to me. And I was using that as a pillow as I was sleeping. And then when we when we were about to reach the checkpoint... They said, right, right. Uh, we're stopping soon, in two, two minutes we're going to be stopping. They may board the, the coach, so just be careful. I was a bit worried because I thought, as being a young girl, I don't want them to pull me off the coach or anything. So I turned my face towards the window and covered my face with my hands and pretended I was sleeping. But I left my bag, so my back was towards my bag. And... He actually, the soldiers actually, there was, there was, I know that there was definitely one soldier that boarded, but I didn't dare look up. All I felt was him unzip the bag and sort of scrummage around like my, my bag. And I was just curled up in that corner, praying, hoping that he wouldn't nudge me to wake me up to see who I was or anything like that. But he didn't, thank God. When we arrived at the Jordan border, it was awful. It was horrible. People were just, there were just people everywhere. Um, you know like you have these refugee camps and sites and stuff like that. It just, oh, there were just, even kids crying lying on the floor, you know. There was I, You could see that they had, hadn't had food and it was just an awful sight it really was um and and so when we got there they actually stopped the coach so he so so the the guy that was representing us from the malaysian embassy took all our passports took everything went to the office that was literally just by the bus and he took quite a bit of time um and then when he came back on board the, the bus he said right um they want to see These people, he started calling these people out. And I was like, oh, I better not be on that list. (laughs) Luckily, we weren't. And then we just went through the border. And I've never heard such a loud cheer. We couldn't believe it, Stephen. We were free.
4: Ginny had made it to Jordan. Her gamble had paid off. She'd escaped the nightmare of being held hostage in Iraq, thanks to her Malaysian heritage. But Bowie and Anthony were still trapped.
3: Anthony had his British passport. He hadn't thought to go out with the Malaysians and claim to be Malaysian. In hindsight, that was a mistake. He should have claimed to be Malaysian and said he'd lost his passport. A BA flood attendant came along and he'd been liaising with some Indians and had a contact who could arrange travel documents. And there was the chance of getting Anthony out with dodgy Indian documents that we could buy and a few days later he was told to come along I went with him to the main hotel lobby where he got on the bus which was taking them up to Baghdad and um, we weren't sure thereafter where but the last time I saw him he Um, it was very difficult um, we both read the Rock Hudson biography whilst we were there that was one of the few books we had and um, Rock Hudson hadn't been able to sort of express uh, his feelings for his partners you know because he was the big film star and Anthony and I couldn't express any. I couldn't kind of hold him or say goodbye properly. I had to be, you know, two two lads saying goodbye to each other. And uh, he got on the bus. And one of the things in the book that Rock Hudson had as a signal to his uh, his friends was just to tap three times for "I love you." And <laughs> so he tapped. Three times on the window, and then I was left on my own in Kuwait. Can we stop a minute, please?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Next time on the secret history of Flight 149. They'd let all
6: the other nationalities who were not French, German, British, or American go. That was already
0: a worrying sign. That was really freaked me out as well because I was like, well, why would they keep just us? What I didn't know at the time was when we went out through the service entrance, the Iraqis were coming to round us all up in through the main entrance. And that's how close I'd left it. We were all ordered to get down into the lobby of the hotel on strict orders of the Iraqi regime, escorted by gun outside and onto a coach, which was immediately driven away into the dark, into the night. It was really, really frightening.
4: God, get me
3: out of this place.
4: The Secret History of Flight 149 is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis. It's produced by Samantha Syke. Sound designers by Rory Ouskeri. To get episodes without adverts, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. This series is based on my book, Operation Trojan Horse, which tells the full story of Flight 149 and my search for the truth. It's available now in print, ebook, and audiobook. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you want another podcast to listen to, try .com. Series 1 is all about the fascinating world of Wikipedia. Series 2 delves into the world of Reddit, one of the darker and more complex corners of the internet. Search for .com and subscribe now. Thanks for listening.